It's great to be here with you this morning. My name's Steve Pruitt, and uh, better known as Mark's dad, Jeff's dad, and Brian's dad. But you might not know Brian. Brian and his wife are missionaries in the Philippines, and they're visiting with us today. So, like, we packed out a whole row. So, pretty good. And then some over there, the in-laws are there, too. So... My wife and I have been here for a couple of years now, almost, and uh, we are gospel community leaders, and uh, it is a privilege for me to be able to share with you this morning. Um, To follow along with me, it might be helpful if you have an outline, and if you didn't pick one up on the way in, feel free, it won't bother me a bit. If you just grab one, there's going to be a chart on it that I think will be helpful for you as we follow along to kind of give you a big picture of what we're doing. Looks like there's several up here, so feel free to do that. Also, if you're using the YouVersion app, you can open the app, click on More, and then Events, and you'll find Element, and so the verses will be, uh, you'll be able to scroll through them as well there. Today, In our I Believe in Miracles series, we're going to take a look at something called the Miracle of Miracles. And what I'd like to do is maybe take a look at this whole idea of miracles and talk about when and why God chose to use them in the lives of people who either experienced them themselves, observed them happening in somebody else, or maybe heard or read about them like we have done. A miracle, simply put, get us all on the same page, is just a divine intervention in natural laws that God has put in place in his universe. There are laws that govern things, and God has the right and the authority, the power to intervene in those things, to interrupt those things as he sees fit. As long as they don't contradict his character and his nature. He's not going to do something. Some people say God can do anything. Well, yes, he can do anything as long as it doesn't violate his holy nature. So some people dismiss miracles and they try to explain everything away through natural phenomenon or good luck or something like that. And they tend to do this especially with the miracles in the Bible. Some people make a really big deal out of miracles, like, and we should because they are, well, they're miracles. You know, it's, it's a pretty big deal that something happens that's completely unexplainable, completely out of the ordinary, of course. But some people think that miracles should happen every single day in your life, that you should expect them. And if you just pray hard enough and the right way and you rub the lamp just right, then God is obliged to do whatever you ask, uh, even if it is a supernatural thing. But if you walk down through Bible history, you'll see that the miracles are recorded because they are extraordinary. They're not the norm. If you study it out, you'll find that there are three special time periods so far in the Bible, um, and each of those periods of miracles 
lasted less than a hundred years. And depending on how you categorize some of those miracles, the total number of recorded miracles was actually less than about a hundred. Now, of course, there are more than that because in John's gospel, he said Jesus did all kinds of other stuff. And if we were to write them all down, the earth couldn't contain the books. Well, yeah, we know that there are more. But the recorded miracles, are the number is relatively small compared to the thousands of years of human history. Not all of the works of Jesus were recorded. Not all of the miracles in the Old Testament, I'm sure, were recorded. But one period where miracles seemed to abound was during the time of Moses when God was showing his power in delivering Israel out of the control of Pharaoh and the Egyptians and when he was giving Israel his law. It began with a burning bush where Moses sees this bush and it just doesn't consume. It just keeps going and going. And I don't know how long he waited just to see when the fire would go out, but it didn't. And then God spoke through the bush to Moses. That's where it started. And God commissioned him to go back into Egypt. And that's where the miracles started going crazy. It went through 10 different plagues upon the Egyptians. And part of that miracle was that God was nuking the Egyptians, but the Israelites over in the land of Goshen were just having a great time. They were not affected by those plagues. The, uh, we also saw a miraculous deliverance out of Egypt through the Passover lamb thing and then the parting of the Red Sea where the people walked across on dry land and when the enemy, the Egyptians, tried to do it, they, the waters went back. Double, triple miracle right there. Not long after that, there was a miracle on Mount Sinai where the earth shook violently and for days upon days the mountain was covered with smoke as God was having a private meeting with Moses and giving him the law. Then there was 40 years of food raining down from heaven six days a week enough to feed two and a half million people for 40 years. I'd call that kind of a miracle. The miracles that were done during this period were done to confirm to Israel the truths that God was trying to communicate to them. He wanted to burn into their minds that he was far more powerful than the gods of Egypt or any other god or all the gods combined. And he wanted to show Israel that God was serious about them keeping his law and being his holy people. And so the miracles sometimes happen. And when they blew it, sometimes, I mean, one guy stole something, hit it, and the earth opened up and swallowed him and his whole family up. There were miracles that were happening that God was trying to say, hey, I mean this, guys. I want you to do this. But after the initial flurry of miracles passed, God expected people to hear his word and to trust it and obey it. And you find that the miracles slowed way down. Another time when miracles seemed to abound was around the time of the prophets Elijah and Elisha, who represented, just like Moses represented the giving of the law, they represented the period of the prophets where God was preparing the world for the coming of the Redeemer. And during that time, there were lots of miracles. Raising a widow's son, 
the widow's food supply that never ran out. She just kept, you know, using it up, doing this meal, come back, and it was full again for the next meal for however many days. It just never ran out. There was a miracle of fire where Elijah was challenging the prophets of Baal, 400 prophets against one prophet, and Moses's, they couldn't get their fire to start, and Moses dumped all kinds of buckets of water on his, filled up the whole trough around the altar and everything. <laughs> said a word, and God sent fire and even lapped up all of the water. And talk about a miracle. There was also one about a floating axe head, which just doesn't happen, but you can read about that. There are many other articles during the time of Elijah and Elisha. During that time, God was using miracles to confirm to Israel that he was speaking to them and guiding them through these guys called the prophets who were foretellers of God's word. The miracles really did work to get the attention of the Israelites, so much so that when they wanted to know something, oftentimes they would go to the prophet to see what God wanted uh, to say to them. And it's because the prophets came with this kind of miraculous power. Another time when there were lots of miracles was around the time of Jesus and the apostles, of course, and we're going to be focusing on that in just a few minutes, so I won't elaborate on it now. God had all kinds of reasons for doing miracles during these times and from time to time still has reasons. Back then, I mean, of course, helping people, providing for them, protecting them because he loved them. I mean, it was, there was all of that, of course. But these periodic floods of miracles happened during a time when God was doing or declaring something new or proving something to help people believe what they needed to believe. He had a purpose for them. They weren't just magic shows where God said, hey, check out this trick I can do. Uh, Aren't I great? It wasn't that. He had purpose behind his miracles as he still does today. Sometimes it was several purposes at once that he was accomplishing through the miracle. During the time of Moses, as far as purposes go, God was starting this whole new thing with Israel as he gave them the law. So during that time, it's uh, God did some things that only God could do, intervening in the natural world with supernatural events so that Israel would know that it was God who was speaking to them and not just Moses. During the time of Elijah and Elisha, same thing. God was proving that the things he was saying through his prophets were his words and not just the words of men. He was also proving that the living God was far more powerful than any of the false gods of the nations around them that they were tempted to follow. And he, by doing those miracles, showed that he alone is the almighty God. There was much the same thing going on during the time of Jesus and the apostles where God was showing the world that he was doing something historic and epic in the life of Jesus. And he did not want us to miss it because he was accomplishing something that would actually affect our eternal destiny right at that point. And, there, you know, there's still a time coming where there's going to be another flurry of miracles, and that's going to be near the end times. 
There's going to be signs and wonders in the sky, unexplainable earthquakes, people rising from the dead, plagues that come from God and just like take out a third of the sea life and a third of this, just huge things that only God could do. And during those times, I believe that God in his mercy is going to use miracles to warn people that the time is short and the window of opportunity to put their trust in Christ is soon closing. So as you look at miracles in the Bible, it's always good to try and see the bigger picture of what God might be doing in the miracles and not just focus on the wow factor of the miracle. Try to see the bigger picture of what God might be trying to communicate through them. He may have just been showing compassion on someone or he might have been backing up his message with the power of a miracle so that Israel especially and also the world would pay attention to the message. Today, in the short time that we have, I want to focus on the miracles of Jesus. When he came, I think we would all agree that God was doing something new and declaring something new, and he didn't want us to miss it. Just as as miracles confirmed the Old Testament covenant, the Old Covenant, so God was using miracles to show that the New Covenant was being established as well. And so it was natural in his rhythm of miracles that they would abound during that time so that he could catch our attention and uh, graciously help us to believe his message. So he graciously gives us these visual helps to prove who Jesus was, to show that Jesus' words were true and trustworthy, and also to show how that Jesus had authority and power over several realms. So The most important way, I think, to look at Jesus' miracles is first to see them as signs or proofs. Proving who he is, confirming his authority, and also validating his words. They were the backup that allowed us to see that what he was saying was true. And this makes sense. In in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, it was prophesied that the Messiah would be called the mighty God. So what would we do if God walked in this door and he was clothed in humanity and um, just walked in there? How would you know that he was the almighty God? How would you know? He'd have to do something probably, right, that only God could do that you would say, okay, that must be him because of whatever. And that, as we go through the Gospels, is exactly what we see God doing. God went to great lengths to prove Jesus' authority and power over several realms, over nature, over sickness, over Satan and his demons, over death, and over sin. And if you look at that chart that you have there, you'll see those categories there and some scriptures underneath. It's not all of the events that happen. Most of them are just out of the book of Mark. There are more that you could write down, and there's a little space there even for you to put some references as you uh, study this out. But um, the first realm that's mentioned on the chart is 
the, about over which Jesus had power is the realm of nature. In John 2, he does his first miracle in this realm. In it, he changes drinking water to wine, and I'm sure you've heard about that. He, he just tells his attendants to fill six jars to the brim with water. They were probably 20 to 30 gallons each. And then, without a lot of fanfare or shouting hysterically or pleading with God or slapping his hands on the jar or doing any kind of hocus-pocus, the water changes molecularly into wine. And then, without even tasting it first, he says, go pass it out to the people. And come to find out, This is not just grape juice or crummy little fresh wine. This is good wine, the kind that only comes through fermentation over time. Wine gets better with age. And the host says that it's so good that it's the best that they've had the whole time. So what you see here is Jesus controlling nature on a molecular, on a bacterial, and a... A fungicidal level, he's got control over that, and even a little bit of like time as well. Another example of Jesus controlling nature is in Luke five, where he controls a big school of fish. It was and and sends them all into the fishermen's nets, and there's so many fish that their nets, which they're used to using, and they probably were state of the art began to break. To have that kind of, I mean, you know, from his position, guiding the fish into the net just shows you that um, the power that he has. And when Peter realizes what Jesus has just done, he doesn't say, hey, cool trick, Jesus. He says, get away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. He's saying, I don't deserve to even be in the same place as you. This was the reaction because he realized he was in the presence of the God who created those fish and who could control them. In Mark chapter 4, they're out in the boat again. Um, And uh, I want you, if you have your Bible with you, just go ahead and turn there or we'll try to uh, get them projected on the screen. Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35, says, On that day when evening came, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. Got that picture? Pretty hairy. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Again, not, Hey, Nice trick, Jesus. They, were, they knew in whose presence they were floating. And they were scared like crazy. 
when it says they're filled with a great fear, that's a mega fear. They really were just having trouble. So who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The natural forces, our best scientists are still trying to control, are controlled by Jesus with a simple phrase. Peace. Be still. Quiet down. And the reaction of the people is, man, who is this guy that even the wind and the waves obey him? That's a rhetorical question. And the answer is, well, he's the God who created the universe and who can still control it at his word. And he's the God who has the authority to manage the universe by the words of his mouth. Lots of example of Jesus' power over nature. In Mark 6, he feeds 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. And when it's all over, uh, they've got 12 baskets full left over, which is more than they actually started with. Right after that, he goes out and defies gravity by walking on water. In Mark 8, he feeds 4,000 people with seven loaves and a few small fish. In Mark 11, he curses a fig tree, comes back later, and the thing is dead. It's withered. It's gone. By speaking to it, he said, you will never bear fruit again. And bam. He left no doubt that he was the God who created and controls nature. Jesus also showed his power and authority over sickness. He heals a sick mother, a daughter, a leper, a paralyzed man. He healed a lame man and a guy with a withered hand. He heals two blind men at once, even one who had been born blind. He even healed a woman with a 12-year bleeding issue that none of the doctors could do. They took their money, but she took her money, but couldn't heal her. By just touching his gar- outer garment, she was healed. He did instant surgery by replacing an ear of a soldier who came to arrest him. He, just, he had power and authority to heal all kinds of sicknesses which was important because the prophet Isaiah had written in Isaiah chapter 35 that the Redeemer's coming was going to be peppered with this kind of thing. It was going to have all kinds of uh, healing things. He said in Isaiah 35 verses 4 through 6, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. When God comes to save, these things are going to happen. That's what the prophet said. So naturally, when Jesus is doing all of these miracles, many are seeing it as proof that he was the one who was being waited for. 
Another thing we see in the Gospels is Jesus' authority over Satan and even the whole demonic realm. In Mark chapter 1, verses 21 to 28, he cast this uh, powerful demon out of a man. It says, And they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Also in Mark 5, he casts multiple demons out of that Gerizim man, and the demons then beg him not to send them away. They testify to his authority. In Mark 9, he uh, rescues a demon-controlled boy with a simple command to the demon, and the demon had to obey him. As you go through the records of how Jesus did this, you also notice the reaction of the people. It's dramatic. They say stuff like, what is going on here? What kind of guy can command those powerful, terrifying demons and they just wither and obey him? Who must he be? And the answer is, he is the creator, redeemer, who is greater than all other beings combined. So, of course, He has power over them. Jesus also showed his power, his authority over death. And he did this by raising a widow's son, raising Jairus' daughter, raising Lazarus after he was four days dead. People were saying, ah, you don't want to go near there, Lord. He's stinking by now because he's been dead four days. They knew what death was and he was gone. But Jesus raised him. Not only that, but in John 5.21, Jesus claimed the power to give life after death. He said, just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. And in John 5.24, he said, He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He's crossed over from death to life. The real proof that Jesus had power over death came when he himself came back from the dead. And he showed himself alive to over 500 people at one time. That's some amazing proof. Either they were having like a community hallucination or they actually saw him alive. And I would say they saw him alive. That was a sign 
that he came back was a sign that fulfilled a prophecy that was written 700 years earlier in Psalm 1610, where it says, you will not abandon me to the place of the dead, nor will you let your Holy One see corruption. In other words, you will not leave your Holy One in the grave to rot. The Holy One was one of the names of the expected Messiah, the, the anointed one. You won't leave him in the grave. Peter says in Acts chapter 2 that Jesus was, when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, that prophecy was actually fulfilled. So the miracle of resurrection was a sign that Jesus was the Holy One, the long-awaited Messiah who would bring us back from the grave and give us eternal life. Jesus also showed his power and authority over sin. Look at Mark 2 with me, starting in verse 1. It says, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. That's some serious motivation. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are, to, are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. The scribes had this uh, rhetorical question going on in their own hearts. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And so what is this guy doing trying to do that? The implied answer to the question is nobody can do that but God alone. So Jesus knows what they're thinking in their hearts. And he says, so that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He looks to the paralytic and says, get up, grab your bed and go home. Now, this highlights an important point. This is something that you see in many of the miracles. Jesus did miracles in the physical realm to show that he had authority in the spiritual realm. That was one of his purposes. He also had times when he just claimed the authority to forgive sin, like John 5.24, which we looked at just a little bit. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has everlasting life and will not come into condemnation, but has passed from death into life. Will not come into condemnation. What does that sound like? Forgiveness of sin, right? He's promising that our sins will be forgiving if we believe what God is saying about Jesus and his message of salvation. 
So God is using these miracles in the life of Jesus as signs and proofs that he was the Redeemer. His miracles fulfilled prophecies that said that the Redeemer would have power over these realms. But there's a second way that God uses these miracles. And that is he used them as portraits of the type of work that Jesus was going to do. And I want you to kind of track with me here. Um, those, the miracles were done as tangible illustrations in the physical realm of what Jesus was able to do for us in the invis- invisible spiritual realm. They showed the type of people he came to save and also showed the type of work that he came to do. Regarding the type of people Jesus came to save, think about this. Most of the miracles were done for the helpless and the hopeless, for those who knew they couldn't help themselves and that nobody else could. They couldn't save themselves from their situation. It was the lame who walked. It was the blind who saw. It was the deaf who were made able to hear. It was the hungry who were fed. It was the dead who were raised. Those who could do nothing about their situation were the ones that were helped. And what they teach us is that Jesus doesn't save those who think they can save themselves. He came to save those who know they can't. He didn't come to call the so-called righteous. He came to call sinners to repentance and faith in him. So then it's a good idea for you to let the miracles remind you that you are helpless and hopeless to save yourself, that you are poor, blind, hungry, deaf, and lame. Some of you more so than others. But don't stop there. Let the miracles... Let the miracles also remind you of just this great work that Jesus has done for you. That's the other thing that the miracles are doing. They're showing, they're portraying the work that Jesus came to do. Think about this. Just as Jesus had power to save those people from their physical blindness, so he is able to heal our spiritual blindness. The song Amazing Grace, I once was blind, but now I see. Things that you were just blind to, once you put your trust in Christ, all of a sudden, things start clearing up. Not everything, but a lot. You, be, you get a kind of a spiritual sight. Just as he showed power to forgive those people's sins by raising that guy up off of his mat, so he's able to forgive our sins. Just as he raised Lazarus from the dead, so he raises us from our spiritual death and gives us new life. In that same instance when he raised Lazarus, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Wow. And that miracle just sort of put a punctuation mark on that. Just as he graciously 
caused the lame to be able to walk again, so he makes it possible for us to get up and walk with him by his grace and his power in ways that we never even dreamed that we could. This is the impact that the miracles ought to have on us. Whether or not we ever see physical miracles in our lives. So as we wrap this up, um, here's what I'd like for us to take home. Miracles are wonderful. Miracles are real. Miracles can still happen from time to time because God's power level has not dropped. But we won't fully appreciate them until the band can come on up. Yeah. I did this. But you thought I was still spacing out like, yeah, I I deserve that. We won't fully appreciate or understand miracles until we understand what the miracles were meant to prove and what they were meant to portray. And I think that they are meant to prove that Jesus is our Savior and they were meant to portray the wonderful work that he was sent to do for us. Now there's a lot more that we could study on this, definitely, but um, we need to leave it there for today. As the band leads us in worship, we're going to celebrate communion together. And uh, it's interesting that that is also an illustration, a, a portrait in the physical realm that represents something in the spiritual realm. The bread portrays the body of Jesus, which was given for us. He placed himself between us and the wrath of God, and he absorbed that wrath on our behalf and the juice or the wine portrays the cost of our redemption we weren't redeemed by just things like silver or gold but but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot or blemish it took the lifeblood of a spotless lamb to redeem us from our sins and so and through the body and blood of Jesus we are no longer blind but now we see we're no longer dead in our sins but we're alive to him and we're no longer spiritually poor but we've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus and so as you celebrate communion this morning just be remembering that be thanking him that he's given us this reminder of all that he's done for us, not just in the miracles, but also in the table. There are uh, also offering boxes at the exits. Uh, This church doesn't take an offering, but actually receives it as you, uh, within your heart, purpose to give generously. So thank you for that. Let's um, pray together. We'll close. Father, I do thank you for all that you've done on our behalf, all of the little training wheels, things that you've given us that help us to believe that Jesus is our Messiah. We're just so grateful for that. We're so grateful for uh, his proof that he is our qualified redeemer and also that he is worthy of being obeyed and worshiped and served throughout our lives. We thank you for Jesus to whom the miracles so clearly point. In his name we pray. Amen.